millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the History Today podcast, available online and to download at historytoday.com. I'm Kate Wells, contributing editor at History Today. Joining us today to talk about the Middle English poem Piers Plowman is Lawrence Warner, Senior Lecturer in Medieval English at King's College London and Director of the International Piers Plowman Society. Lawrence, thank you very much for joining us. Could you give just a brief overview of what the poem is? Sure. Piers Plowman, as a figure in the poem, shows up five or six times in different guises. Really, the poem isn't so much about that figure as about this dreamer, Will. Will goes out into a field and falls asleep and starts having a marvelous dream. We think we're in the world of romance then, and a lady comes soon after as well. But quite quickly, it turns into social satire, and we have a fair field of folk where the dreamer sees people from all the estates and what they're doing right and wrong. They're winners and wasters. Then Lady Holy Church comes and tells him what the dream means, and the dream means that truth is the best. The poem could have ended right there and said its message, but then along comes mead, and mead means reward, and mead is a prostitute. She's whoever people want her to be. She can be good, she can be bad, and he gets diverted. So it turns into this big allegory of the marriage of mead and conscience, and so we're in this kind of world of allegorical personifications for a while. So the first third of the longer versions of the poem are this social satire then it turns to um, uh, psychological allegory where the dreamer encounters uh, figures named things like imaginative and wit. There are also waking episodes. He keeps falling asleep and waking up, falling asleep again. At one point, he falls asleep when he's already asleep. There's a dream within a dream. Um, and in the waking episodes, there are lots of really interesting things that happen as well. And many of them centered in London. Um, the opening passage takes place in Malvern Hills. So we think that probably, and the language of the poem seems to be Malvern, but the poet clearly knew London quite well as well. There are three versions of the poem, it seems. The A version, what we call the A version, kind of stops. And it seems that he was confused about what to do with it. And that's the one that people date between 1365 and 70 or so. What we call the B version seems to have been the project of the 1570s, much longer. And then he revised the whole thing again to what we call the C version, which might have been circulating as late as around 1390 as the beginning date. Um, and it was quite popular in the, around the turn of the 15th century. And what do you think prompted this? The C version is quite different from it, or is it the Z version that's quite? There's the Z, the Z version, there's a lot of debate about whether that is an early authorial draft right. um, or whether it's a scribal um, debasement. Okay. A memorial reconstruction, yeah. perhaps, like the bad Cortes of Shakespeare. Um, the A, B, and C versions all have a lot more in common. Mm. The Z version has a lot of that stuff, too. I'm kind of agnostic about whether Z is by the same author. Okay. Um, but he did substantial revisions each time. Yeah. 
enough is in common that we call them all Pierce Plowmen, mm. but they're separate enough both in the textual and manuscript tradition and in what they're trying to say that we treat them as distinct. Okay. I say we, most mm. people treat them as distinct okay. versions of the same poem. So this year marks the 650th anniversary of Piers Plowman. Uh, why have we picked this date? Well, the best that we can tell is that um, William Langland, which is the name by which he seemed to go, began writing Piers Plowman around 1365. That's, that has to do with all sorts of um, allusions within the, what we call the A-text. Um, there are references to events that happened shortly before that, like the Great Wind of 1362 and one or two other political events from the early th 1360s. So the earliest date that we assign Langland's beginning to work is about 1365. Now, that said, he seemed to spend his whole life writing this poem up until about 1390. Okay. And there are about three versions of it that, seemed, that Langland seemed to have written that mm -hmm. get combined and kept on coming out throughout the 14th century and beyond. Um, and so you say William Langland. Why do we know? What do we know about him as an author? That is a really interesting question because one answer would be we know almost nothing. <laughs> and that, that name is basically a pseudonym that we use for person who wrote Pierce Plowman. But last year there came out a book tracing a big biography based on a 15th century manuscript, which says that, um, William, that William son of Stacy Rockala wrote this poem, made this poem. And there's a lot of evidence about the Rockala family. And the suggestion is that perhaps Langland was his pen name or maybe his mother's name. And so one scholar has looked into all the evidence about who this person was. One of the interesting things about that is that that story does not at all fit with the image of the dreamer in this poem. So all this is speculative. That's just one of many theories. So the idea was originally that it was slightly autobiographical or that he was putting himself in the position of William. Yeah, precisely. Will is what the poem is about, the will. And so this poem has a dreamer who falls asleep very quickly in the poem, and we only learn much later that his name is William. So it's both allegorical and that it's about the will's movement, but also there was a strong tradition of poets, particularly in dream poems, putting themselves in, like Geoffrey Chaucer puts Geoffrey in some of the dream poems. So it seems a good bet that he was called William in real life as well. And so we found this person and educated guess that it might be him then. Yeah, that, well, that's what this scholar Robert Adams um, has done. And it, it's reasonable. Um, I'm not convinced myself, but it's as good a guess as others. Someone else has recently found a reference to Long Will, someone called Long Will in historical record. This yeah. is Michael Bennett who found this record. Um, and if that's, and he thinks that that's Langland, and if it is, why this person was on a um, uh, in the king's army going up to fight Scotland in the 1380s, which also doesn't fit what we think we know about the poet. It would make it harder to spend that, devote that much time to writing a poem of that length and yeah. revising it. And I suppose it would, yeah. I um, read um, something about uh, one of the Williams being in orders, perhaps, being in the clergy or something. Well, that's the other theory, that, okay. that Langland was in orders... Um, in minor orders, because he presents himself as being married, and that would be minor orders, um, and that he might have studied it um, in, in Worcester, in the, the abbey associated with the cathedral, 
Nice. Abbey is not the word, but anyway, he, he was associated with Worcester Cathedral in this theory. But again, there are no historical records. That yeah. So that's going from internal evidence in the text. Yeah, like that's right. Not. Okay. That's right. What do you think prompted the revisions then? Him changing or circumstances changing that prompt him to yeah. well, evaluate? That, that's a really good question. And a lot of the answer depends on the passage at stake. The general idea that the the general narrative people have inherited is that he wrote the A version and then kind of painted himself into a corner and thought he just had to start the whole thing over again. And in the meantime, history intervenes. And we suddenly have a boy king in 1377 with Richard II. So there's a passage about his coronation that gets inserted into the prologue. So he does this whole revision of that. Um, Then, so the story goes, the rebels of 1381 refer to Pierce the Plowman. And people think that the C version might be the more conservative one where he's reclaiming his poem. I'm skeptical of that for a number of reasons, but that's, it's as good a theory, a working theory as anything else. And it does make that kind of idea does make sense of a lot of things. The idea that the politics and also just the desire to be much more clear about what he's trying to say, because it can be rambling and the poet probably realized that (laughs) it's hard to fix it up. So partly for, to improve his text and maybe to improve dissemination and reception, maybe? Yeah, and to, to maybe try to exert some control over that. Okay. Another thing is, it seems when he was revising, that he was revising from scribal copies and not his own copies. And some of these scribal copies, and it seems like he was working from, in some cases, particularly from the B to the C version, a very corrupted scribal copy. What happened to this? Yeah. And that prompted all sorts of major revisions. Sometimes then he kept the change, he kept the errors in the C version because mm-hmm. either he was happy with them or he didn't notice them or he would just had his mind elsewhere. So the poetry also we shouldn't overlook as a driving desire. Like if mm-hmm. the scribes have messed things up, because of course we're not in a print world where things are pretty much set, all it takes is one scribe to sit down and copy it and get everything wrong or get enough wrong, even, in, even at the level of how the line sounds, for a poet want to change it and once he started he can't stop you know yeah the new passages show up this bit i better tinker with that bit's okay oh no it's not you know so it's um it's an alliterating if we're talking about the poetry it's alliterative rather than rhyming isn't it that's right the whole way through the whole way through yeah there are a few passages in the c version um of up to 10 or 15 lines where the alliteration just isn't there and that could be a sign that he died before he finished and these were just among his papers okay. or that he wrote it as a draft and he was going to go back and tinker. But without exception, every line alliterates and um, he, Langland seems to have followed his own rules um, different from, say, what the poet of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight was doing. But basically every line has four stressed syllables. Usually the first three of those syllables alliterate with each other. Sometimes all four do. There's this Isura in the middle. That's the heavy gap in the middle of those four. And there are certain rules about how many unstressed syllables in a row you can have. Mm. And there's a lot of debate it's going on. It's very like Anglo Saxon poetry. Yeah. The yeah. same structure. It's interesting. And one of the debates is whether Anglo Saxon poetry pretty much had a continual um, influence throughout, yeah. or whether around 1350 there was the literature of revival. And you talked uh, briefly about. Um, obviously lots of scribal copies, but how was it received at the time? Well, it seems to have been very popular in um, around 1400. There were, there were copies all around England. Um, London had a big cluster of surviving copies. We've lost many more than what survive. 
as the 15th century went on, fewer copies seem to have been made. It then became very prominent again in the mid-16th century with the first printed edition by Robert Crowley, who saw it as a um, prophecy of the Reformation. He was a radical Puritan. In my reading, actually, he's responding against a tradition in which passages from this had been circulating orally because there are also Catholic instances of the text showing up in commonplace books and such, and um, particularly the prophetic ones. Barton, you know, the, the prophetess, she's this prophet going around uh-huh. saying, you know, oh, the king shall have a wife who will bear four-headed monsters, things like that, crazy yeah. stuff. And so bits from England show okay. up in the 16th century that way too. So it's versatile enough that various people over the centuries have managed to appropriate bits for their own Absolutely. purposes. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Staunch Catholics, staunch radical Protestants. These days it's seen as a social text, um, speaking to issues of homelessness and society. Very timely that way. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. You can read more about the debates surrounding the authorship of the poem and listen to a clip of Lawrence reading the prologue from the C version on our website at historytoday.com.